Holy Spirit who led Christ into the wilderness to be tested. We pray that you would lead us and guide us this morning. Open our ears and open our hearts to your holy word that we might receive, that we might trust, that we might remember who we are, children of God, redeemed by the cross. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Welcome to the wilderness. We are on a 40-day Lenten journey with Jesus, reliving his fast, his journey in the wilderness, which itself is a reliving of the testing of the people of God in the wilderness from the exodus to the promised land. And so let us start there this morning in the wilderness with God's people on the way. God says to his people, when you get to that land that I'm giving you, and when you get into that land and you start to get settled in, you start to make yourselves comfortable And when you get to that first harvest that I'm going to provide for you, I want you to set a portion of that harvest aside. It's the first fruits. It's the best part of your harvest. And I want you to go and I want you to take it to the place of worship. Basically, when you finally get that really good job I'm going to give you, I want you to set aside a portion of your first paycheck And bring it to church. And then God gives them an offertory liturgy. He gives his people a very strange liturgy to recite when they are to take in that basket of first fruits. He says, go to the priest with your basket and say this. Today I declare to the Lord your God that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our ancestors to give us. And then when the priest takes the basket from your hands and sets it on the altar of the Lord, you are to say this. Here's the liturgy. A wandering Aramean was my ancestor. What a strange creed to recite in the presence of the Lord. Aramean would have been some Gentile people, also Semitic like the Jews, but definitely Gentile, living to the east of God's people. And basically what God is saying, when you get in there and you begin to feel settled and you begin to feel established and you feel successful and you're comfortable and you've got that first home, right? And you've got two cars in the garage and things are going well. I want you to go to church and I want you to confess. My father, Abraham, was a wandering Aramean. 
you're gonna celebrate and remember that you were once aliens, that you once too were wandering, and you remember that you went to Egypt and there you were mistreated. And in remembering that slavery and that oppression and that mistreatment, you aren't gonna be the kind of people that oppress others and that mistreat others. In fact, you're gonna look out for them. And so when you go in to do this liturgy, I want you to share part of it with the priest, and I want you to share the other part with the alien living among you. And you're gonna celebrate with them and everyone. What does that represent? Well, the priests represent our connection to God, right? They're there to mediate God to the people and the people to God. So it's our connection vertically and then horizontally, right? The aliens represent the people living among them, maybe that don't own land. People that are living on the margins. And over and over again in God's word, God is telling them, hey, you've got to be good to the alien and to the orphan and to the widow. You've got to look out for those that don't have anyone looking out for them. And what you might not realize is that in the Old Testament, this event, what God did for his people in Egypt, how he freed them with a mighty hand from the oppression and led them out. This was God's decisive, salvific act. This is how he saved his people. The Exodus was the gospel for the people of God. And so they were supposed to continually go back and have this gospel identity. They're supposed to remember where they were when God found them. Literally, Abraham was living as a Gentile in a faraway land. And God called him. And then literally his descendants became enslaved and had no power to save themselves. And God, in his love, he heard their cry and he freed them. And so they're always supposed to remember where they were when God found them and what God did to save them. And remembering those things were supposed to redefine their lives the way that they worshiped, and the way they treated each other. And if you know the rest of the sad story, you know that they, in fact, did not remember. Our spiritual ancestors forgot. They forgot about their life in Egypt and all those things that God did to free them they forgot what it means to live in the world as children of God. They had lost their identity. And so centuries later, Jesus comes on the scene. And at his baptism, after he comes out of the water, he's off on the side praying. And he hears the voice of the father say this, you are my son, the one I love. And in you, I am well pleased. And then Luke's gospel cuts to the next scene. And it's in that scene where we began our gospel reading this morning. 
Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returns from the Jordan. And he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He was led by the Spirit for what? What did the Spirit lead him for? To be tempted. To be tested like Israel, right? For a period of 40. Sometimes we think about temptation as something that only happens when you're in the wrong place, right? At the wrong time with the wrong people. We think like that's the place of temptation. As long as we stay out of the wrong place, we're not going to be tempted. And this morning, our gospel is here to remind us that Jesus was, in fact, led by the Spirit, that he was following the very voice of God to the exact place where God wanted him at a time when he was dedicated to the spiritual disciplines, right? He's praying and fasting for 40 days, and it is, in fact, in that very location where he experiences the opposition of Satan. And so, friends, I want to just remind you this morning that if you're doing the Lord's work, like if you're out there and you're really trying to live into what it means to be a child of God, like if you've taken your vocation seriously, like, okay, the Spirit of God is living in me too, and God's got a plan for me, like in my neighborhood and at my work, and he's, got, he's calling me to serve, right? And I'm going to serve in the nursery, and I'm going to serve my neighbor, and you're doing the work. I just want to let you know that that's the very place of temptation. That is the place of opposition. And I don't know about you, but for me, that's good news. Because sometimes I can be tempted to think that, oh, wait up, things are, I'm being tested. Like maybe I signed up for the wrong assignment, right? And I know right now in our church, there's a lot of folks, you feel like you're in the wilderness. Like it's rough, right? And I just want you to know that it doesn't mean that God isn't in it. It doesn't mean that he doesn't have a plan. It doesn't mean that his spirit isn't alive and in you. We're gonna have to remember in the wilderness who we are. And so Jesus ate nothing during those days. And when they were over, he was famished. And the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command the stone to become a loaf of bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, one does not live by bread alone. This is the first test. How might we describe it? You might say it like this. Will Jesus exercise his God-given power apart from the leading of God's spirit? One commentator put it this way. Will Jesus follow the leading of the spirit and manifest unwavering trust in God to supply his needs? Or will he relieve his hunger by exercising his power apart from God? How will Jesus respond well, he responds by quoting Deuteronomy 8.3. I encourage you, just a little Bible reading tip. If you're reading this at home, if you've got a Bible that's got cross-references, go look up that passage. Because a lot of times, folks in the New Testament, they're just giving you like a little piece of the verse, and they assume that the people reading it like know all about what's around it. And a lot of times, if you just go dig about what's around that quotation, you'll find so much. Let me read Deuteronomy 8.3 to you. It'll say a lot about the scene. 
This is Moses speaking to the people on behalf of the Lord. He says, he humbled you by letting you hunger and then feeding you manna with which neither you nor your ancestors were acquainted in order to make you understand. And here's the quote, that one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of the Lord. Being hungry and then looking for provision was actually supposed to teach Israel that God was their source. Yes, you need bread to live, but where does bread even come from? It's the Lord that provides. And so you need to actually trust the very word of God for your very sustenance. Such an important thing we do when we stop before each meal and we thank God and we acknowledge that our food comes from him, right? Because we could be tempted that, that it just came from that check that, that hit my, pay, my bank account, right? Like that just came from my direct deposit. It just magically appeared. But it turns out God provided that job for you, right? He provided that and it's because he did it. He provided you with the breath to breathe in the morning. He provided you everything you needed to do the work that you did. And so there with our family or whoever we're with, we just take a moment to acknowledge. It's such an important spiritual discipline. It's not just a little funny tradition or kind of a little thing. It's a constant reminder that we don't live by bread alone. It's the breath of God, his word that sustains us. In John 5, Jesus said this, I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the father doing. You see, Satan tempts us to ignore God's leading, to instead use our God-giving power to do things that are seemingly good, but that God never intended for us. I want you to notice that this is actually high-level temptation, right? Like Satan isn't throwing like these little cheap, like petty things, right? Like tell a lie or cheat on something, right? Or steal a candy bar, right? He's tempting Jesus with some really good things. Like, we really need Jesus to eat, right? Like, I need him to eat because I need he's got some other things to do, right? He's tempting Jesus with very good things. We'll see, or things that actually seem like a good thing. The temptation is to ignore God's voice and to use power apart from the will of the very one who gives us power. I accidentally printed my notes two-sided, so I'm like, where's the next page? <laughs> this is part of your testing in the wilderness with me as I preach. How do we resist? How do we resist the temptation to act in our own power? To resist the temptation not to rely on his voice, to do even what might seem like a good thing. By humbly acknowledging our dependence on God's word for everyday life. We're talking about walking in God's will daily in the big and the small. And how do you know God's will? Prayer, fasting, silence, and reading scripture in community and a community formed 
by the Spirit of God. We do it both in solitude and we do it together. The second temptation is similar. Jesus is attempted to receive his authority from a source other than the Father. It will be a quicker path and it will involve less suffering. I like quicker paths and less suffering. Fred Craddock, professor of preaching in New Testament over at Candler, said it this way. Will Jesus submit to the ruler of this world in order to achieve good for the people of this world? Now, it might surprise you, but 1 John 5, 19 says that the whole world is under the power of the evil one. And that evil one turns to Jesus and he says, all this can be yours. You just got to worship me. We can notice that in Luke, in the two other temptations, he's referencing if you are the son of God. And that reference to the son of God is missing here, but it's actually looming big in the background. Because in the Old Testament, one of the key messianic uh, passages that the New Testament writers are, are quoting very often is Psalm 2. It's a psalm about messianic sonship. And this is what it says. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possessions. You are my son. These are the very words that God speaks over Jesus at his baptism. And these are the very words that Satan is either trying to get Jesus to doubt or trying to get him to distort and understand that he can be God's son with living very differently in the world as, as opposed to how he is called to live. But we know that if Jesus believes the words spoken over him at his baptism, you are my son, then he must also know this declaration comes with a promise. It's a promise that God will be the one to give him an inheritance and God will be the one to give him authority over all over all the earth. It is true that all authority on heaven and earth will be given to Jesus, but it's not going to come through compromise it's not going to come through bowing to evil, but through humility and suffering and obedience on the cross, Jesus will defeat the devil and break his power over humanity. And so how do you respond? When Satan says to you, I'm going to help you get to that place of power that you want. And once you get in that place, you're going to be able to do some really good things, right? Like people kind of could use someone like you in a position like that. It's just going to take a little compromise, right? It's going to take a little, a little bowing down to get where you need to go. What's it going to look like when your boss dangles a promotion over your head that requires compromise? Or when the quarterly profit goals demand that you bow down, you sacrifice the well-being of others for your gain? What will you say? 
Jesus' response is this. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. It's like, I, you know, I just can't. I'm already busy serving someone else. I have a Lord that I'm already bowed down to. So I'm not in the place where I can bow down to this right now. We worship the Lord only. And then the third temptation. It takes place in Jerusalem on top of the temple. And certainly this setting represents the place where Jesus will die. Suddenly they are transported to Jerusalem, the place of Christ's passion. And the devil says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and protect you. Satan wants Jesus to imagine that being the son of God means that God will never allow him to suffer or to be put to death. But what Satan does not realize is that God's divine rescue comes not through avoiding suffering and death, but actually through suffering and death. And it turns out that Satan has no power over Jesus because Jesus never forgets who he is. Jesus knows that as the son of God, obedience to the father's will is crucial. And Jesus knows that as the son of God, his authority over others will be given to him by the father and in the father's way and in the Father's timing. And Jesus knows that as the Son of God, he doesn't need to test God's faithfulness. Even in his own death, he can trust the benevolent plan of God. Jesus knew who he was, and he never forgets it. Who are you? Do you have a gospel identity? Do you remember where you were when God found you? Satan wants to tempt you to identify, I'm sorry, Satan wants to tempt you to find your identity in all the wrong places. He's fine with you, believing you are a child of God, as long as he can distort what it, exactly it means to be a child of God. This morning, I encourage you, don't forget Egypt. Don't forget the misery and oppression. Don't forget the God who freed you. Don't forget your ancestor was a homeless, wandering immigrant Aramean. In short, when you are tempted, remember your baptism. And hear the voice of the Father speak over you. You are my child and whom I am well pleased.
Amen.